This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. Well, today is uh, Holocaust Memorial Day and Unfortunately, although I did include a message about that in my thought of the day, unfortunately, there is a growing, growing amount of anti-Semitism, not just in this country where I've been making note of that for quite some time, but all around the world. And it's really very disturbing. And, And it would be disturbing enough because I have you know, heritage. And because anybody who has any Jewish heritage knows what the Holocaust cost the Jewish people. It actually costs a lot of different people, gypsies and Christians and anybody who wasn't, uh, you know, considered uh, Aryan of a race that uh, Hitler thought was superior to everyone else. Uh, There was mass executions going on. But in particular... He targeted the Jews, and we should never forget that. And that's why a day like today uh, brings that to mind. But I've really become painfully aware of the fact that there's just an anti-religion sentiment in this country right now, the likes of which I've never seen. If you have biblical principles or values, your intelligence is called to question and then after your intelligence, your morality and your, your heart and your kindness and all these other things, and you're quickly going to be called all kinds of names. And so a friend of mine sent me an article that was written by a friend of his, Sylvia Thompson, who happens to be a uh, conservative. She also happens to be black. She also happens to be Christian. So she's got a lot of, lot of so-called... Uh, you know, crosses to bear. And she wrote a a piece in Renew America, which is a website that I'm becoming more and more familiar with. She wrote a column. And it's really interesting because on this day of uh, Holocaust Memorial, when I can tell you right now that most of the people I know who call themselves Jewish will not remark this day at all. You know, maybe they'll get an email mentioning it, um, but none of them are going to have a moment of silence in respect for the millions who perished at the hands of the Nazis. No, no. In Israel, they'll, they'll sound an alarm and everyone will remember. And I wrote in my thought of the day, or I spoke in my thought of the day, which was based on uh, Shmuel Sackett's, his thought of the day, You know, I almost long for the days back in the early 70s when the Jewish Defense League was in full bloom. 
I was a big fan of the Rabbi Meyer Kahana of Blessed Memory, who started the JDL. And they weren't, you know, when they said never again, they, by the way, were responsible for the, um, for the phrase becoming generally used. They meant never again. And they were willing to fight. They were willing to fight any way they had to, not just with words. And I, um, I was a big admirer. I, I never actually met the Rabbi Kahana. I did see him at an event, but like from across the room. And, uh, and, and the people who were part of the JDL in those days back in New York were very, very militant, very militant. Very different than most of the Jewish people that I knew you know, in my high school who were wimps. You know, I went to the Bronx High School of Science. Like we didn't have a lot of fighters in there. We had a lot of like, you know, thinkers. And uh, I loved, I loved what the JDL did. But Sylvia Thompson wrote this piece about, um, you know, she said that one of the methods that practitioners of perversion use against Christians and other patriots is to brand us as phobic. We're homophobic, transphobic, fatphobic, and on and on and on. And she says, it's time for us to embrace the name and declare, yeah, I'm, I'm phobic. I'm phobic against anybody who uses psychologically sick people in their devious schemes to destroy the American Christian culture. You know, these people know how to use groups as weapons against civil society. And it has become somehow somewhat pathetic how so many Americans, especially American men, yeah, I'm calling you out, guys, have become, you know, in, in I don't know, they're, they're unable to, to push back on these devious schemes. I was having a conversation this morning with my friend Fane Lozman, and I said, you know, what, why is it that less than half a percent of people are literally transgendered, and yet it is the biggest cause celebrate today of everybody. How does that happen? Well, I don't know how many of you got to see the interview last night, the first part of the interview between Elon Musk and Tucker Carlson, but not only was it riveting. It was much more interesting than his interview with Donald uh, Trump. It was more interesting than any of the interviews I've seen him conduct before. First and foremost, because he let Elon Musk talk. And I have to tell you, by the end of the, of the program, and I, I watched it on uh, after the fact. I, I wasn't available at, at 8 o'clock. So I watched it and I could, you know, just fast forward through the uh, commercials. And so I saw the whole thing in, you know, about 40 minutes, 45 minutes. And my husband, we, you know, we invariably delete it when we're finished watching it. I mean, it's not something you feel like you have to save most of the time. And I turned to him and he's just about to hit the delete now button. And I said, don't delete that. Because I, I almost feel like I want to go back and watch it and take notes. Because there were some very, very, very scary parts. And, you know, uh, Elon Musk, uh, 
is on the uh, autism spectrum. He's he's got Asperger's. Now he says it, not me. I don't know if he's, you know, been diagnosed with it or if his assumption is. But you know, there's a lot of us somewhere on the spectrum, and there's there are a number of people like Elon Musk who are very very high functioning, but there are signs, and when you watch them speak. At uh, for any amount of time, those signs become very visible. And so I had a friend who, during the program, she watched it in live time. She texted me. She said, I, I think Elon Musk is a controlled stutterer. And so I said to her, no, no, he's actually, you know, has Asperger's. And she goes, well, that would explain it. Because there's a, a deliberation and a pausing when people whose minds, like, you know, Elon Musk, and to a much lesser extent, but still truly mine, our minds are racing, 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 and we're almost, when we're ready to speak, we've gone past the point uh, that we want to speak about, so now we have to, like, back up. It's almost like I have to put my brain in reverse and go back and try to get to the point which I may have left behind two minutes ago. And that's what causes him to have that sort of stilted um, conversational tone. And when he gets on a roll, much like any good radio host, there's no stopping him, you know. <laughs> they just He just pours, it pours out of him. And what poured out of him last night was frightening when it comes to artificial intelligence, when it comes to um, governments, and not just ours, but international governments monitoring all of our interactions with one another. It was truly, not just eye-opening, but frightening. And I'm gonna be, you know, thinking about it for a long time. I, I, I went back, watched it again, uh, jotted down some notes, and you know, I, there's a, I think the second part of it is gonna be airing tonight, and I can't wait, you know, I'll, I'll be speaking somewhere, but boy, I, you know, that, that's uh, as soon as I get back home, I will watch it because it was very compelling and pretending it's not going to happen isn't going to save the day. See, that's what we have a tendency to do in this country and around the world right now is we like say, well, don't pay any attention and it'll go away. Well, that's not true. Artificial intelligence is not going anywhere. You know, Fane was telling me today about how they can literally take my image and they can program it to say things that I would never say and it will look so realistic that you even I would have a hard time believing that it wasn't Joyce saying those things and he said Joyce that's not coming that's that's already here and and Fane is a tech ge genius so you know um I believe him and I believe Elon Musk. And, you know, he talked about the head of Google who wanted to create a digital god, you know, and that's why he parted ways with him and started the AI Open, which then got co-opted by another genius, tech genius. And now, much like it's, it's Google and AI Open, have all the brains and all of the money to pursue artificial intelligence to what end? And and that's the question because the to the end is power. It's always about power. It's always about money and it's always about power. And 
I don't, you know, I can't imagine how we're ever going to have a an election with any integrity right now without all the AI that I wasn't even aware was in existence. But now knowing how much AI will be utilized during any upcoming elections, we ought to be scared to death. Because Elon Musk said that there, there'll be a a computer that will be able to figure out exactly what needs to be said, how many times it needs to be said, how often it needs to be heard, who needs to be saying it, and then it will become fact in the minds of millions and hundreds of millions of people. And that's scary. I mean, you're not just talking propaganda. You're talking propaganda on steroids with no way to combat it. And I see that all the time. You know, I see people who watch MSLSD and they think that they're getting the truth. And for that matter, people who watch Fox and think that they're getting the truth. They're versions of truth, but we don't know what the truth is. And apparently... The government has already figured out how to challenge what we believe is the truth with untruth. And I just, uh, you know, I thoroughly recommend watching that interview one way or another if you can. And and to start really thinking about this, you know, uh, Elon Musk, who is certainly no stranger to uh, regulations, as he pointed out, he sends rockets into the into space. He created the first electric car that worked. Um, you know, he bought Twitter for twice what it was worth, as he points out. And all because he believes that there should be regulations, that he should not be allowed to send a rocket in space if he doesn't know what he's doing or how it's going to react to the atmosphere. I mean, regulations are necessary to preserve humanity. And that was the other interesting thing that he said. The guy from Google accused him when he said, well, you know, um, will that help human beings when they were talking about AI and its growth and the digital God and all this stuff? And the guy said, oh, you're such a speciesist. So in other words, like Elon Musk thinks that whatever we do should be in the best interest of the human species. And this guy thought that was bad. We're in trouble. You know, we've got people out there with the levers of power in their hand who don't think that human beings should be protected by other human beings and who would be okay with some digital god dictating how human beings react. Tucker asked Musk if, um, if a computer could recognize beauty. And he said, well, have you seen some of the artwork that computers create? And then they started showing some pictures of artwork that had been created by artificial intelligence. It was magnificent. So you can't create beauty unless you can recognize beauty, right? So that was the answer to that question, which really freaked me out. Anyway, don't forget to have our app on your phone. Download the 850WFTL app or head over to the 850WFTL website so that you can become part of one of these incredible contests. We're giving away a four-pack, a family four-pack to SunFest in May. 
lots of prizes, but if you're not on the website or you're not on the app, you can't win them and you must play to win. Stay right where you are. I'm going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods market hi everybody this is adriana trajani i'm the host of you are what you read i have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now we get everybody from sarah jessica parker to Kristen hannah mitch album Susie essman craig ferguson rain wilson amor tolls you name it they come they share new episodes of you are what you read drop every tuesday on apple spotify or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts so I thought it was pretty interesting, you know, um, I, I don't actually spend a lot of time on Truth Social, but I, I do check it, um, and it was very interesting. Uh, Donald Trump put up a message today. He said, uh, uh, quick question. If Pelosi can order J6 political prisoners held without bail, Kevin, why can't you release and compensate them? And, uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff that makes you, um, convinces me that no matter what anybody tells me, and believe me, some of the people I respect the most and, and admire the most get upset with me about, you know, my my determination that I don't think anybody else can fix what's going wrong over the last two and a half years. I, I really don't. I, I mean, I only see one person who has a track record of being able to do the things that everybody else says can't be done because he doesn't care. He doesn't care if you like him. Uh, everybody thinks, oh, he really loves to see uh, people uh, clapping and cheering, and that's why he does the rallies. Yeah, everybody loves that. It'll get your, you know, get your uh, blood pumping. I like it too. Tonight I'll speak. I love it when I'm speaking and people say, "Oh, you know, you speak for me." And yeah, of course I love that. But that's not the same as when I get insulted, called names, beat up, attacked. When articles are written about me that are very unflattering, when people attack my husband or my children or anything like that, you know, there's a different kind of, I don't call it guts, but a different kind of skin that you have to have. This country is in more than turmoil. We're heading down a very dark road. We're not, uh, you know, we're not just sliding towards Gomorrah, we're bobsledding towards Gomorrah. You know, once again, I say, when I have to get into debates with really smart, logical people about like, well, you know, why would Ron DeSantis sign a bill that, uh, you know, says that you can't have an abortion past six weeks? Well, you know, not only do I know the answer to that question, but it always amazes me that just because you've made a determination in your head that it's okay, doesn't mean that 
everybody thinks it's okay. And when you tell me, oh, but 65% of Republican women think it's okay, where'd you get that number? I, I really don't know. And how do you ask that question? You know, would I always have exceptions for rape and incest? I think so. But to be perfectly honest, I think as a society, we ought to be much more circumspect about allowing anyone to make a determination about another's life. So if they can't compromise and say, well, once there's a heartbeat, you know, you, you no longer can exercise that right without very specific parameters being met. Like, why are we having that argument? You know, why are we laughing and, and you know, thinking it's okay that this John Fetterman, who's this, the junior senator from Pennsylvania now, beat Mehmet Oz in the midterms, spent weeks, two months in a, in a hospital in Walter Reed Medical Center for clinical depression, and he shows up yesterday in a hoodie, tennis shoes, and a pair of shorts. I, I'm, you know, that's not normal. I don't care. If his, you know, two months in, in, in Walter Reed yielded a guy who thinks it's appropriate to show up in the nation's capital as a senator in hoodies, shorts, and tennis shoes, I have some questions about the mental health of the doctors who are treating him, okay? Man, he looked fit as a fiddle, somebody said. Really? Okay. If you're so fit, why, why didn't you put a suit and tie on? I mean, all your aides are wearing suit and ties. Would you would you allow your chief of staff to show up in a grungy pair of shorts, sneakers with uh, you know no socks and a hoodie? That's okay. You think you're in good mental health when that's how you show up? He says he's revved up and ready to face down Republicans over the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, um, which, of course, you know, this is, uh, you know, they keep saying, oh, they're going to be deep cuts over the debt ceiling. Oh, deep cuts. Oh, no, we're not cutting SNAP for families, declared Fetterman. What, where have you been, my dear? You're going to chair a subcommittee hearing on food and nutrition? You're wearing shorts and sneakers. I'm sorry. You know, this is just, uh, you know, good thing it's casual Monday at the United States Senate, right? Good thing, uh, you know, there's no dress code. Uh, they wouldn't let Frederica Wilson wear a hat in, in the chamber because there are no hats allowed in the chamber. And she was known for big, beautiful hats. It's not like she was going to show up in a, you know, a baseball cap. And yet, no, she couldn't do it. But this, uh, this, oh, I, I, you know, it's just so depressing. It really is. And this is where we are. And this is why I say I get into these, you know, long debates with people about the, the tenor of civilization right now, looking at these people beating up, uh, you know, innocent people on the street and filming it. 
and and their politicians defending them. Oh, they're just disenfranchised. They just need places to play and you know, they just need midnight basketball and they, they just need a job. They don't want a job. They want to beat up people. And that apparently is okay with a lot of politicians. We got to get rid of all those politicians. I'm sorry. Or it's the end of the world as we know it. Anyway, I'm going to take a break. When I come back, I'm going to be talking with uh, uh, a, a, a dear friend, Julie Kirchner, the executive director at the Federation of American Immigration Reform, because there's a battle being waged, a legislative battle being waged today. And you need to call your congressman. I'll let Julie explain that to you. Stay right where you are. I'll be right back. All right, and welcome back. As promised, I have a dear old friend, Julie Kirchner, the executive director at the Federation for American Immigration Reform. And she and I have been fighting this fight since, I think I first met you in 2004 or five. Is that right, Julie? Yeah, that's right. 2005, yeah. I think. Yeah. Because yeah. Uh, and at that time, you were... Uh, you were the head of the governmental relations department mm -hmm. and then and then uh, executive director after That's that. Right. And all those legislative battles that we fought in 6 and 7 and 13, it's amazing when you think about how we beat back all those attempts by the amnesty folks and we're still fighting the same battles. Like, victory doesn't come easy. No, it doesn't. And you have to be dedicated and you have to you know, listen to shows like yours so you can stay informed and know what's going on. And and uh, it's it's always a challenge. But, you know, um, democracy never comes easy. Having a good civil society, you know, requires the uh, vigilance of everyone. Everyone needs to take care of, you know, take care of our country and be part of the solution. Absolutely. I, you know, I had someone, I was talking to someone earlier this morning off the air who said that when I took those shoes up to Washington, he said, you knew that this was going to be the biggest issue for the American public for years to come. And I said, yeah, but I never expected it wouldn't get resolved. You know, I, I thought that we had mm -hmm. it. And, and here we are again now. Now the majority, the House Republican majority, they had made a campaign pledge that they were going to do something about the political mm -hmm. asylum laws. What is on? What are they doing? Well, it is exciting because, um, as you were saying, so many times we've been fighting, but we've been fighting against something. We've been trying to stop something. Here we have a really great immigration enforcement bill that tackles a few things. Um, as you said, it, it, it um, addresses asylum reform in a way that's never really been done, and it closes a lot of opportunities for fraud. It creates very specific definitions. Um, and it does things that we've been – it puts into statute policies that we know work. So, for example, requiring um, asylum seekers to present themselves at an official port of entry and just – instead of just crossing anywhere. And then if they get caught, right, then they claim asylum, right? Right. Um, it makes it easier for us to make um, – they're called safe third country rules. So, for example, if you're down um, – going through all of Central America and you crossed through three or four countries and you could have claimed asylum anywhere, but you didn't because you wanted to get to the United States, it makes it easier to say, no, you've had multiple chances. You need, if you're truly free, uh, fleeing persecution, you know, you need to 
ask for asylum in the first safe country you reach. So, and it makes denials for, for, it denies eligibility for pretty simple things like felonies. Um, I know it sounds crazy, but it has, it's not written in statute that way right now. So the bill really makes some very sensible changes. Um, It ends catch and release for um, unaccompanied minors and families, and that's certainly been in the news a lot. Um, Parents in Central America or everywhere really are sending their kids traveling alone, making this horrible journey because they know everyone will be released. And so it incorporates um, family units and children. They're going to keep the families together, but they are going to detain them and remove them as a unit. So, you know, things of this sort, um, it ends abuse of parole. You know, they're just releasing people. It's called parole, and we can get into the details, but they're releasing people through parole into the United States. This bill severely limits what the government can do in terms of release. So, and it also mandates um, the use of E-Verify, which I'm I'm sure a lot of your fans and your your, uh, listeners know you know, is that screening tool when, when employers hire someone, they need to make sure that their person is legally present or legally in the U.S. So um, those are a few of the things it does. And um, it's, it's really exciting. And I'm hoping all your listeners will get behind it. It's a great opportunity to make changes. And what's really important about it, too, is that, you know, we can keep throwing money at the problem. So everyone... You know, you hear a lot of the open borders people saying, oh, well, give us more money, give us more money so we can give food and shelter and transportation and services to all of the illegal aliens across the border. But that's just throwing money at a problem. You also need to make real policy changes. And this bill addresses some of those big loopholes that President Biden and his administration have been exploiting, you know, to, to you know, promote their open borders agenda. Yeah, and and they're not going to give up easily either, which no, means no. that you've we've got to make sure that the the congressmen who have supported this bill and who are working with organizations like Fair um, stick to their guns because the pressure gets intense, and we all know yep. this. It's a, they'll be called uh, bigots and Hispanophobes and all the names that you and I have been called for all these years. Yep. And some of them are uh, pretty weak in the knees, um, but their constituents' phone calls make all the difference in the world. We learned that in 2006 and seven when we lit up those phones. Yeah. And they, they, you know, they know that for every call they got, it represents 10 or 20 constituents who are not yep. pleased or who want something, and and they they make note of those calls. And when we do oh, this, it absolutely. really works. I was actually uh, way back when I was just a kid uh, in college, and I won't say who it was. I did intern on Capitol Hill, but one of the jobs we did, of course, is you answer the phones, and we had tally sheets. I mean, you know, back in the Stone Ages, right? We had tally sheets, but we knew all of the hot issues, and they had tally sheets for every caller that called in. You know, did they live in the district? Yes. You know, what issue were they on? And all it was just and they counted them up and there were reports made every single day about all the calls they got. So if your listeners are out there and they can call their members of Congress, you know, two senators, one member of Congress in your district, um, call leadership. You know, all those calls matter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And 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 the 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 bottom line is that um, I, I have found that our government is responsive but you have to give them something to respond to. 
And mm-hmm. we have failed over and over again during very tense moments in, in the discussion of immigration reform. And what we allow is the other side never gives up. And yeah. they will badger. And, you know, if, if I have to talk, answer one more question about dreamers, I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> but they made that part of the dialogue. And, you know, my, my kids were dreamers. They were American dreamers. And nobody yeah. cared whether they got education or got free medical care. Um, they had to go out and earn those things themselves. So when they throw around those terms, they don't stop, and we can't stop either. It's it's scary how well the open borders groups are funded. They're yeah. funded so well, and they have you know all these professionals everywhere doing nothing but trying to erode our border security and undermine our immigration laws. And um, it really requires Americans to get involved. Um, And I know people are real busy. I mean, at times are tough and people are taking on second jobs to pay for groceries and and things of that sort. It's really tough. But, um, you know, this requires everyone's help. Everyone has to band together. So I'm just so thrilled to be here and and hopefully, you know, be part of the solution. I'm so grateful. You know, it's nice to talk to you and and to know that there are people out there who really care about this issue. I mean, it's, it's you know, we're out here saving the country, really. And everyone needs to, you know, to take part in it. And it's so amazing to me because, you know, Julie, you and I are, are old enough to remember, you know, when I was in college, which is a lot before you were, um, we were environmentalists. And one of the big things that we set, we talked about was zero population growth. We have to get a handle on what we're doing to our water supply, to our land, to our arable land. And we can't do it if we have unbridled immigration. We wanted a very strict immigration policy. And now those are the people that I'm fighting against, you know, the Sierra Clubs and the Greenpeace. They used to be on the side of controlled immigration. And now it's like, you know, the, the left has united disparate groups in a way I never dreamed possible. Yeah, it's, um, I agree. And and you've touched on something that's so important is that, you know, what is our immigration policy and how do we, how does it benefit the whole? Mm-hmm. And whether it's the environment or jobs or public safety, whether it's stopping, you know, rampant drug trafficking or trafficking of children, you know, we, it's, there it has to be a balance between the individual and the whole. And we've completely lost sight of, we've, completely lost sight of of how the whole um, is affected by our immigration policies. There's no issue that doesn't come back to the immigration policy, which is why uh, Donald Trump won an election in 2016. He went, he ran on a closing the borders policy and it resonated with people all over the country. You don't have to live in Texas or Arizona for it to be an issue for you. You can be a, a, a parent of a child in Broward County, Florida, and see that uh, you know English is a second language here and schools are overwhelmed and hospital emergency rooms are overwhelmed. It hit home with everybody in the country and when he was not when he was bold enough to talk about it, it propelled him to the White House. Uh, and, and, of course, for the last four years or the last two and a half years, we're not allowed to talk about it again. Now we have to go back to the old dreamer stories and we have to go back to, you know, uh, uh, well, uh, drugs come across the border because Americans demand drugs. No, our young kids don't demand fentanyl, but they're getting it anyway. Yeah, it's it's 
It's stunning. You know, we're supposed to have leaders in Washington, and what's really frustrating is, um, you know, no one's no one's stepping up, just as you said, to talk about the real policies, about taking care of our country as a whole. So, so we have it. So we preserve it. So it moves forward, you know, and we preserve it for the next generations, right? And yeah. this is everything that immigration touches on. Um, as you said, you know, the environment, crime, um, even housing these days. I mean, it's yeah. crazy. I was just reading uh, the city of Portland, Maine. I, I, I know it's far from Florida, but can you believe they just opened their city arena because they have so many asylum seekers and they don't have anywhere to put them. And oh. this is what's coming across the country. I yeah. mean, this is what's coming to a city near you. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it, and so people need to wake up and and see how this crisis really does affect them um, well, personally month, and in their communities. Yeah, next month when Title Forty Two expires, they'll get a yeah. real taste of it. That's for sure. And and that's yeah. why we say we got to get this legislation passed. You've got to encourage your congressmen, whatever district you live in. You can go to my website, any website, and you can find out who your congressman is if you don't know. And you send notes to Marco Rubio and to Rick Scott, and you let them know that you want them on the forefront of this battle. Marco, you have to kind of cajole, but do it. Anyway, Julie, <laughs> I, I well, you know, he was one of the gang of eight, so I'll never <laughs> let right. him forget that. I thank you, you for your time. You need to be nudged in the right direction. <laughs> yes, that's true. Well, thank you for your time today. Give my best to Dan and everybody over there, all right? I will. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Julie Kirchner, the executive director at FAIR. I got to take a break, but uh, don't forget, coming up at 1 o'clock, Dan Bongino at 4 o'clock, Ben Shapiro, and the morning crew will be back early tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. But uh, I still have one segment left, so don't you touch that dial. I'll be right back. I tell you, if it's not one thing, it's another, right? That's what my, uh, my dear old dad used to say, and now I'm saying it. But, uh, I, you know, I've been having a lot of conversations lately about the killing of women's sports because it's really, it's, it's, it's powerful, especially if you're someone like me or like my friend who went to college because we were able to get scholastic, you know, we, we were able to get um, sports scholarships. You know, Title IX opened up a lot more opportunity for women. And in case you hadn't noticed, women's college basketball had uh, very few uh, really super talented teams. And then all of a sudden, they are coming into their own. You know, this year's championship game back uh, in, in the beginning of the month between Louisiana State University and Iowa, they had like 20,000 people show up in Dallas at the American Airlines Center and they say that like 10 million people were watching the game on their, you know, on their television sets. You know, that is a direct result of years of women's sports becoming better and better as a result of these incredible athletes. You know, that's 103% ratings height from just the year before that. And it's a better rating than all but three of last year's college football bowl games. And women's basketball can thank Title IX for that kind of energy and those kinds of numbers. It was right in my era 
you know, I graduated high school the year before because it was 1972 when they started Title IX. And we started playing in intercollegiate sports, you know, in, 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 1971 and 2020, all these years, you're seeing a deeper talent pool, better coaching, better players, and a product that's lucrative. You know, media wants it, want to put it on, on, on television. And you can thank Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese. You know, these are the two stars, um, you know, who put up big numbers and have charisma and even trash talk and, and got into the mainstream media you know, talking smack is no respecter of gender. And women's college basketball is light years from what it was when I played. You used to be able to count on one hand the woman who could go up with a 15-foot jumper off the dribble. <laughs> no more. No more. You got Zia Cook in South Carolina. She looks like Chris Paul. And yeah, they, they still take too many set shots in, in women's basketball. It's slower, no question. But the Biden administration is about to kill, kill women's basketball and all women's sports because, uh, you know, we're talking volleyball because these new rules that they're proposing for Title IX compliance, they couldn't even prohibit men from competing in women's sports. They had no trouble banning schools from banning such participation. One-size-fits-all policies that categorically ban transgender students from participating in athletics consistent with their gender identity across all sports. Now, they did say you can keep biological males out of women's competitions, but they had a lot of exemptions. And that's why I say Title IX, its day has come and its day is about to go. And that's really sad. It's going to apply to high schools, to colleges. You can ban transgender athletes in the interest of fair competition and to avoid injury, you know, but you got to go through some hoops now. At the elementary level, schools have no shot at keeping transgender girls off the field or off the court. So what does that say? What's wrong with us? Why are we trying to satisfy this militant transgender lobby at all? It's not going to work. And we're talking about a handful of people. I mean, how do you not forbid a six-foot-one trans-identified swimmer by the name of Leah Thomas from blowing away all of the biological women in the conference swim meet? You know, and then R Riley Gaines goes and, and talks about it in San Diego and she gets assaulted, physically assaulted and locked in a classroom by a bunch of transgendered activists. What gives them the right to keep a young woman who has spent years training to become the best swimmer, was winning uh, tons of meets. Actually, one, one of her meets, she tied with this Leah Thomas, but they gave it to Leah Thomas. And, you know, I'm, I'm watching the trans activists, they're already freaking out that, that the new rules actually say you have to be exempted 
if you're a male, to compete in female sports. Oh, that's not enough. They, they're being betrayed. The new regulations detail numerous ways schools can ban trans athletes while remaining compliant with Title IX. To put it mildly, you know, we are being held hostage by a very tiny, tiny group of people. And a group of people who I would venture to say have no case. This is insanity. And trans participation is going to grow because Generation Z uh, love it. You know, they're not binary and they're trans and they're all this stuff. They don't know what they're talking about. But we have, we've bought it. And now we've allowed the Biden administration to kill Title IX with this gender ideology. So for people like me and people like my friends who got to go to college because we could play ball, we're, we're pretty ticked off. I thank you for your time this time. Until next time, my plan is to be back here tomorrow at noon, if it be his will and he delays his coming. And uh, hopefully I'll be have a couple of guests lined up for tomorrow. I'm going to check in with Blaze and Golia. May God bless you and may God bless the United States of America. See you tomorrow. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.